This is Dear Analyst, episode number 32, and in today's episode, I'm going to be discussing the query function, which is a function in Google Sheets, which allows you to bring SQL-like functionality to a Google Sheet. And I want to give a hat tip to Ben Collins. Uh, came across one of his blog posts about using the query function and inspired me to actually experiment with the query function myself since I don't really use it too often in my Google Sheets. And I would really highly encourage you to check out Ben Collins' website, his newsletter, and also SheetsCon, which I mentioned a few episodes in the past. So what is the query function? And, and again, it just allows you to kind of bring some SQL-like functionality and database-y type of commands into your Google Sheets. So if you're coming from uh, the database world, MySQL, the query function will feel very, very similar and easy for you because it's basically like writing SQL in an Excel formula. So I'm gonna walk you through a Google Sheet that I created. It's a really simple Google Sheet, has some data about COVID um, data. It's basically COVID data from March for May 1st across all countries with confirmed cases, deaths, and recovered cases. And the link to the Google Sheets is in the, uh, in the show notes. And just to give you some more context and background about the query function, I actually don't really use the query function that often because I find that if you are trying to, let's say, f- do some analysis on a big data set, I find that using pivot tables to kind of isolate down and filter down and sort down to the data that you're looking for and finally do some calculations is kind of easy enough to do. Uh, I think the cases where you want to use the query function is you don't want to build a a long pivot table. You don't want to drag and drop form, fields around, and the query function might be the kind of nice workaround to just quickly put in your query, find the answer, and get on with your analysis. So, and also the second thing, as I mentioned earlier, is that it just gives people that are real, that are used to writing SQL uh, an easier way to find the data and query the data that they need right inside the Google Sheets instead of having to dump the Google Sheets into a database and then do the querying that way. And to be frank, if you have a big data set, I mean, this is where you really have to figure out what tool you should use for the right job. But if you have a really big data set, let's say in the millions of rows and you're trying to query that in Google Sheets, I mean, yes, it's possible, but it's not what Google Sheets, in my opinion, was made for. I think you're better off pushing that data into like a Postgres database or some other database tool. And I think there's so many like WYSIWYG plug and play type of database tools online in the cloud where you can just upload your data and start querying the data right away. It would almost make it, I would think, easier to do this in one of those platforms versus Google Sheets. Uh, But a lot of people are, you know, love their tools, love their Google Sheets. I know I do. So it might just be easier to query the data in Google Sheets, even though it might be a little slower compared to a traditional database 
platform. Um, so maybe if you have less than a million rows, Google Sheets might be better. But again, it's just, you know, if, if you like SQL, if you like database commands, this is probably a better way to go in Google Sheets. Um, but again, there's so many different, I mean, just off the top of my head, we, we at my company, we use mode analytics internally to write queries and it's pretty quick. And there's so many other tools you can use just to um, get something quick, quick and dirty up if you want to do analysis on your big data set. So that's kind of why I don't really use the query function too often is because if I'm doing any kind of query on my data, it's pretty much coming from an actual database and not a Google Sheets. And in those small instances where I want to do some querying, I, I'm just using a pivot table because I find that built-in functionality in Google Sheets easier to use instead of having to write SQL because if I'm writing SQL, I might as well just go into a database. So take that with a grain of salt. Um, so I'll go ahead and get started with some of the examples and how you can use the query function. So in the Google Sheets, if you look at cell rows, sorry, columns A through E, you have country and we have, let's see how many countries we have in our list. We have 188 countries in our list. We have column B, which is the last update date, which is May 1st. Column C is confirmed cases of COVID. Column D is number of deaths for that country, cumulative deaths. And column E is number of recovered cases. In cell H6, if you're in the Google Sheets, you'll see a formula for how to show the number of countries and the associated confirmed cases where cases are greater than 50,000. So you want to look at this entire list. Again, you could, you could quickly just apply a filter to this list of data and just filter on column C to figure out where the confirmed cases is greater than 50,000. But the nice thing about this query is that you could probably, you could substitute, actually, I haven't tried this yet. You could probably substitute in variables to change from 50,000 to 100,000 or some other number. Um, I haven't tried that yet, but that could be a nice experiment to try. But you want to write a query where you can select the country. You only want to show the country and the number of confirmed cases and limit the results you get back to confirmed case countries with confirmed cases that have greater than 50,000 cases. So the first thing I actually did was, and this was a tip I borrowed from uh, Ben Collins' blog post, is name the range, which just makes it easier to reference your data set instead of having to go like A1 to E189. You first select all your data. In this case, it's A1 through E188. And then you go to the data menu, then click on name ranges. And then you can just name that range some unique num unique name. I name my range COVID underscore data. And so now when I want to reference this table of data, I can just say COVID underscore data instead of having to go A1 to E188. So the, the formula for this first query function in cell H6 is equals query left parentheses COVID underscore data, which is my name range to my data set. And the query you put inside the, in the formula, in the function has to be within double quotes. So you have double quotes and then you can start typing in the query. So we want to pull just the country column and the confirmed cases column. In this case is columns A and C. So you would do select, so double quote, 
select A, comma, C. Those are the name of the columns. And then the word where, and then C greater than 50,000. So the query is select A, comma, C, where C is greater than 50,000. So here are already some big differences between the query function and SQL. You don't, you have, there's no concept of column names. Whenever you reference whatever column you want to pull, pull data back from the query, you just reference the column letter. So A, B, C, D, E. So this is a big limitation for me when it comes to using the query function because there are a lot of times when my data set is changing where one column may shift over to the right and I might move columns all over the place and your query function will not adapt to those columns moving around. Whereas in SQL, you actually say you want to select the column name and doesn't matter where that column is located in the table per se, you're always going to return back the column because that, that name is the unique identifier for that column in your SQL database. In Google Sheets, Google Sheets was not meant to be a database per se, so I believe that the only way the team could get around this was by just basically selecting the column header. Maybe there is a way around this, that there's probably some hack that you can use to select the column name, but um, I'm thinking you probably might use a combination of like the redirect formula, indirect formula or something like that, but haven't really thought too in depth about it. But the first limitation for me is just not being able to reference the column header as the field that you put in the select statement. Now for a lot of people, the table of data will not change. Your columns stay the same. You're just getting data added to the bottom of the table. And so these, um, the letter, the letter representing the column name doesn't really matter that much to you. And for some people, I think just selecting the column name is actually, selecting the column letter name is actually easier because you don't have to type out like country region and confirmed and the long header name. You just type out the column letter, in this case, A and C, and you can get back the results. So just some caveats about using the query function. Um, but overall, I think it's a really simple way to A, find the data you want, and B, uh, maybe kind of be an onboard to people that are not familiar with SQL to get to learn how to use SQL because the, the syntax is so similar to, to SQL. All oh, right, so the next formula is show countries where deaths are less than five, but greater than zero, ordered by the number of deaths in descending order. So we, I guess in plain English, I guess it's already pretty plain, but I basically want to find all the countries that have less than five deaths cumulatively. Um, and I want to rank the countries from greatest to least. So let's look at this function, this formula a little more in depth. I'm in cell H24, if you're following along Google Sheets, it's equals query, left parentheses, COVID underscore data, my data range, and then double quote. So, so I only wanna show the countries and deaths time. So countries is column A, deaths is column D. So I say select A comma D, where D is less than five 
and d is greater than zero, order by d descending, d d e s c. So this syntax feels really familiar to Google Sheets. Uh, oh, sorry, Google Sheets. It feels really familiar to SQL. I'm basically selecting columns A and column D, which is country and deaths. And I want to show, I want to limit and filter my data set to only where the deaths is less than five and greater than zero. And then I want to order by the number of, order by the deaths column in descending order. Now, if you want to do a quick comparison to between Google Sheets query function and SQL, I think um, Ben Collins's blog post is actually a pretty good reference point. If you look at the blog post, you can see that you can have the where clause as we talked about. You can put in the order by clause, which you just did with this query, where you can order by any column in ascending or descending order. There's the limit clause, which is really helpful when you're when you have a big data database when you want to limit the results to just 10 or one. You can also write arithmetic functions, which I'll talk about in a bit. Labeling, which I'll talk about in a bit. Aggregate functions, max, min, average, group by. So these are all pretty common SQL commands that you can apply in the query function in Google Sheets. So let's get on to the third query, which is a little more tricky. I'm in cell C H62, and I want to calculate the case fatality rate for each country, and then show the countries where the rate is greater than 10%. So again, I guess in plain English, I want to find the countries where the the death rate, if you will, is greater than 10%, and that basically gives, it, gives me an indication and shows me that this country, for whatever reason, uh, one in ten, one in ten people are passing away as a result of COVID. So how do we get this formula? So in cell H62, this is a little more advanced formula, and the reason is because of the syntax, obviously. But I'm writing equals query left parentheses COVID underscore data, select A, which is the country, and then I say D slash C. So I'm taking D, which is deaths, and then dividing it by C, which is confirmed cases. So D slash C, where D slash C is greater than 0.1, label D slash C, single quote, case fatality rate, single quote. Now, what is all this junk here? So the where clause where D slash C is greater than 0.1, we've already seen how to use the where clause. I'm basically trying to limit my results to where the number of deaths divided by confirmed cases, that ratio is greater than 0.1, so greater than 10%. And then what is label D slash C, single quote, case fatality rate, single quote? The main reason I'm doing that is because my resulting data set that gets returned is two columns. The first column is country slash region. The second column is case fatality rate. There is no column named case fatality rate in my original data set. I only have country, last update, confirmed, deaths, and recovered. So this label command allows me to create a new column header based on a formula that I've put inside the query function. In this case, it's D divided by C, which is just case deaths divided by confirmed cases. 
Now, this is a little different than how things work in SQL. And this was actually a big difference for me in terms of figuring out how to make this work. Because when you're in SQL, you can actually just say, select a comma D slash C as case fatality rate. And you're putting the name of the column inside the select state in the first part of the select statement. In this case, you're putting the label of the column after the where clause, which is a little strange. And that speaks to another difference, I would say, between SQL and the query function in, in Google Sheets is that the order in which you put these commands is different in Google Sheets versus SQL. So if you're coming from SQL, this might be one, another kind of like thing to get around, which is just knowing the order in which to put these commands. Um, I find it a little strange that the label comes after the word clause and probably also you put that after the group by and the order by. Uh, but in any event, label allows you to create a new column name based on a formula that you're putting inside the function. In this case, I'm just trying to find the case fatality rate, case fatality rate which is deaths divide, divided by confirmed cases. And then you get a result back of, let's see, we have 18 countries on May 1st that had a case fatality rate greater than 10%. And it looks like MS Zandam, I think, was actually like a cruise ship. And then Yemen, France, uh, what else? Nicaragua all had pretty, all have high case fatality rates um, based on data starting cumulatively up through May 1st. So there you have it. Those are some pretty common queries and of how to use the query function in Google Sheets. There's definitely a lot more to do with query if you really want to get into the weeds. I'd recommend checking out Ben Collins' blog post to find some of these examples. And um, yeah, I wouldn't, I'd say that, again, I'm not a huge user of query, but just knowing that it exists is kind of interesting. And I think I've used it in one or two Google Sheets where I had to do some intermediate like data munging. So there are some use cases for it. I just haven't come across them that much myself because um, I use just like a regular database platform when I want to query a bigger data set, especially when it comes to internal company data where we have like millions and millions of rows. That's just easier to use in a dedicated database tool. All right, so I have a lot of other podcasts and even books I wanted to talk about that I listened to recently. And the first, in the second part of my episode, second part of this episode, the first one is an article. And it was published on May 8th in Vox. And the title of the article, you know, regardless of your political views, I'm just looking, I just thought the subject matter of the article was interesting because it relates to Excel. Uh, so the subject, the title of the article was the Trump administration's quote unquote cubic model of coronavirus deaths explained. And the subtitle is an extremely foolish way to forecast the pandemic. And again, regardless of your political views, if you scroll down in the article, you'll see a few scatter plots of date and 
uh, basic COVID death. And I th- it bas- this is basically showing the daily number of deaths by day in a scatter plot. And the idea here was that the, the article, the author is making a claim that you can do some basic uh, trend analysis in Excel. And if you know how to do this in Excel, sorry, if you know how to use the scatter plot chart in Excel, you would know how to do this right away. You plot the chart on a XY scatter plot. You right click the dots in the scatter plot and then say add trend line. And then you get a panel that pops up on the right. Um, if you're on Windows, that tells you what kind of trend line you want to add to the scatter plot. And the default one is like a straight trend line, which just kind of tries to draw the best fit line between all the dots. <clears throat> and so in the article, they talk about, the author, author talks about how if you just draw a straight trend line, you would expect to see that um, 10,000 Americans would die per day by election day this year, which seems very implausible. So it's it's not not a great way to forecast, obviously, if you just draw a straight trend line. But <clears throat> there, we know that the pandemic does not exhibit a very straight trend line. So there are other types of trend lines you can draw when you open up that panel in Excel. And there's things like a parabolic trend line, there's a cubic trend line. And the article goes on to say that the administration utilizes the cubic model to quote unquote forecast the number of deaths over uh, for the coming days. And so if you later down in the article, if you look at there's a there's a one scatter plot that has the straight trend line as well as the cubic trend line, the cubic trend line shows that as it, it, the, that the number of deaths based on the existing scatter plot peaks around April 20th and then by May 10th it looks like May 11th or May May 10th or May 11th reaches zero, which is obviously not true. But the, the article goes on to say that this cubic model is obviously not a great way to forecast the, the number of deaths. But Hassett, now who is Hassett in this article? I haven't, I'm kind of losing track of all the different characters now. In the Oh, it's chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, Kevin Hassett. He he mentions that the CEA, the Council on Economic Advisors, they did not they were not trying to claim that this is a forecast, but rather a way to smooth out the volatility in the uh, in the data set. And just looking at some a quote here from an article, Hassett, Hassett himself explained this in a similar way to the New York Times' Jim. Tankersley, who reported that deaths vary by the day, particularly on weekends, to smooth out the volatility, Mr. Hassett said he employed just a canned function in Excel, a cubic polynomial. So there, so the CEA is arguing that this is not necessarily a forecast, but a way to quote take a take messy data and smooth it out to display the underlying trend better. 
But then the article says one obvious problem with this with this is that the post's original sources seem pretty clear that it was a forecast. So I'm not sure how you can interpret a smoothing of volatile data to be not interpreted as a forecast because based on the charts that the CEA provided, it definitely looks like a forecast because there's forward-looking days and there's dotted lines representing like what the data would be in the future. And so as some naive consumer looking at this chart, I would just be like, oh, this is a forecast because I see dates in the future. And then I see lines that are dotted showing like declines into the future. So long story short, my takeaway here is that it's really difficult, especially for a infectious disease to forecast and try to put some kind of canned trend line from Excel into the data set uh, that would result in some pretty bad uh, trends or rather inaccurate trends that will be hard to prove once the data actually comes in um, because we just don't know that much about how this pandemic is is spreading. And uh, yeah, I would take a look at read the, read through the article yourself to kind of make your own opinions about what the CA is trying to say. But I think my takeaway is that um, for something as serious as an infectious disease, adding a basic trend line from Excel is not a good idea. <laughs> so that is uh, the first thing I wanted to mention. Um, that's I guess more more or less related to. Excel and Google Sheets. Uh, this the next few things are a little bit more more heady, um, but I think are still important to talk about. So the second podcast that I want to bring up in this case is, I think I mentioned the Jocko podcast in the last episode of Dear Analyst, but this one is episode two twenty two with Dan Crenshaw. And the title of the podcast is Life is a Challenge, Life is a Struggle, So Live with Fortitude. And around minute two hours and 41, <clears throat> um, Dan Crenshaw is talking about how he has he's written a book. And in the book, he talks about some research he's done or some research he's found that proves that people become more resilient and stronger after really hard occurrences. And he, I think he mentions a kind of like a psychological term called post-trauma growth. And for most people that post quote unquote post-trauma growth leads to resilience and in, mo in some cases being stronger after that period. And I think Jocko kind of adds his own editorial to the situation and says, without suffering, there can be no resilience. Instead of trying to erase suffering, in erase suffering, we should value it. And I recently watched a documentary called American Factory on Netflix, and it's about the differences between the way American factories were American factory workers work in terms of building like glass for cars and how Chinese workers work in China and factories that create glass. And 
in the documentary, the Chinese factory workers come to Ohio to help with the establishment of a new factory that's supposed to replace an old gym factory that went down because of the 2008 financial crisis. And the Chinese workers, they have these little pep talks and little group talks where their boss or manager tries to tell them about American culture and how they can assimilate and how they can get more along, more or less get, get along better with their American counterparts. The, one of the quotes, one of the experiences in that documentary that stuck out to me was when the Chinese manager, he was saying something along the lines of American kids growing up are taught that they can do anything. They're encouraged to do anything. And they, as a result, become a little overconfident as they get older and their parents will take away things that may be challenging to them and it kind of seems a hint that that like americans don't work hard which i don't think is obviously not very true um but there is that kind of undertone that i i kind of felt in in that message and i mean you can talk you can there's so much out there about like helicopter parenting and like our kids are too entitled and you know kids are you know little I forgot what's the term that I heard recently on like the Bill Maher show. Um, snowflakes. That's that's the word. Snowflakes. All this stuff out there about um, how our kids today are too soft, which I also don't think is true. Um, but I think listening to this episode and listening to um, the stories that Dan told about not necessarily seeking out suffering and trauma, but welcoming it, knowing that it will lead you to become stronger and more resilient and have more grit when it comes to, you know, school, work, whatever it is. Um, it's super, it's very true. And I, I think for me personally, I think it comes sometimes with um, like just going to the gym. Well, not really going to the gym now, but just like working out. We all know that it's hard to wake up at six in the morning and going and just going to do squats it's not necessarily a happy thing for most people, but a lot of people do it because they know they need to get exercise in. They want to look good. They want to feel better about themselves. They want to be in shape. They want to be more confident. And that's why they do it. And for me, I think some of those things are true, but I think the biggest thing is that I know at the moment I hate it, but I never, I never ever have told myself afterwards after the session, after the squats, after the hard work, man, I didn't really want to do that. It wasn't worth it. I've never said those things. And because I, I know that right afterwards, that adrenaline rush, that feeling of I, I feel stronger, I feel healthier, I feel more confident, that state mentally and physically is it's a little bit addicting to be honest, but it just gives me more strength to want to pursue other things in, in my life. And so I think I would just listen to this whole, whole podcast episode in itself. I mean, it's almost, I think it's more than three hours long, but around that two and a half hour minute mark where they start talking about how um, suffering can create resilience, I think is really, really interesting and I really like the way that 
uh, Jocko and Dan just laid it out very clearly for for people to, to understand that um, you should try to go and do something hard. And nine times out of ten, afterwards, you're going to feel so much stronger, better, more resilient, and you're never going to feel like, man, that was not worth it. I did not grow during that time. And that's the mental game you have to play with yourself when you're just starting to work on that project at work, when you're just starting to do the, the first set of squats is that there is this future state that will result in you being stronger, more resilient, and more confident. Um, we'll just leave it at that because I know this is already getting a little bit, uh, a little frou-frou for, for my liking. So take that for um, what it's worth. And moving from one kind of heady subject to another is I want to mention, it's, I think I mentioned a book I read a few episodes ago that really changed my thinking about um, life, let's put it that way. But it's really rare that I'll read another, I'll read something that, you know, there are, th- there are times when you are watching a TV show or listening to a podcast or reading something in the news. And it might just be like a few sentences, but it just, that, that, that message sticks with you for like weeks and maybe months on end. And I'm not sure how long this message will stick with me, but it's, it's stuck with me for the last few weeks ever since I read it. So I thought I'd share uh, the story and a little bit about why I think it's so impactful. I'm just going to drink some water here. <clears throat> the story comes from the book Some, 40 Tales from the Afterlives by David Eagleman. I forget how I heard about this book and um, bar- borrowed this book from the library before the the pandemic and can't return it because libraries are closed, but I decided to finish reading it and it took me like an hour to read it. It's super short. And it's a fictional book about what, our lives could be like in the afterlife. And I was trying to figure out what about the story I could like quote and say in this episode, but I really couldn't find anything. And the story source, the story is so short. I think I'm just, I just decided I'm just going to read the whole thing and you'll see at the very end. And I hope you'll see, I hope you'll see at the very end why I think this story was so impactful. And Again, it's one of those things that's still kind of stuck with me for a few weeks, and I'm still continually thinking about it as it as it pertains to living your best life. Let's just put it that way. So again, this book is called Some 40 Tales from the Afterlives. This is the story called Incentive on page 62. <clears throat> and here it goes. Even with the aid of our modern deductive skills, It is impossible to imagine our own death. It is not because we lack insight, but because the concept of death is made up. There is no such thing. This will become clear to you at some point when you get into a situation that you think should kill you, say a severe car crash. You'll be surprised to realize that it didn't hurt. The witnesses around you will laugh and help you up and brush off the glass and explain the situation. The situation 
is that the people around you are actors with a capital A. Your interactions with other people were almost entirely scripted from their point of view. Your quote-unquote afterlife, if you want to call it that, is your initiation into the game. We realize this moment of disclosure will be hard on you. For God's sake, you will think as you pick yourself up from that car wreck, what about my lover? What was our relationship based on? Were all the nighttime whispers fabrications, rehearsed lines, and all my friends, actors, my parents, pretending? Don't despair. It's not as bad as you think. If you think you were the only uninitiated one while all the rest were actors, you're not quite correct. About half the people are actors, and the rest, like you until moments ago, are the beneficiaries. So just to recap, you got in a car accident, and you realize that you are now an actor and not a beneficiary. So back to the, back to the story. So it is equally likely that your lover was in the same naive boat you were, and now it is your responsibility to become an actor for her so that she detects no change in the relationship. You will become like an adulterous spouse striving to force normal behavior. You may have to be an actor for other beneficiaries as well, your boss, your cab driver, your waitress. As an actor, you get to see the back of things. When you finish a conversation with the beneficiary and exit the room, you find yourself in a backstage waiting area where slanted two-by-fours hold up the unfinished backs of walls. There are couches here, and you can get snacks from vending machines. You make small talk with other actors while you wait for your next appearance. Your next appearance will be, say, at 12.53 p.m. for what appears to be a a coincidental run-in with someone on the subway. Before each appearance, you are given a small script on a note card. Generally, the instructions are vague. For example, you may be instructed to feign surprise when you run into the beneficiary. Perhaps you will be instructed to pretend you have just bought a dog or, alternatively, to act as though work is weighing on your mind. Other times, the instructions include something quite specific. You are to mention somewhere in the conversation the title of a new book or drop the name of a mutual friend. Presumably, other actors during the week will have similar assignments, so the beneficiary will be guided toward a new idea or meeting. So you memorize your brief script, and when you walk back through the door, you will be wherever you were, wherever you are next needed. The restaurant bathroom, or the museum gift shop where your friend is waiting to meet you, or perhaps a bustling sidewalk where you are to be spotted arm-in-arm with another actor. For the beneficiaries, the back sides of all doors are constructed just before they enter. For the actors, all the doors of the world are our portal into and out of this waiting room. We don't know how the directors dynamically construct the world, much less for what purpose. We are only told that our obligation here as actors will eventually end, and then we will move on to a better place. You may decide you're not willing to uphold this continuous lie to the beneficiaries. You may yell into the director's intercom that you won't be their deceitful stool pigeon. This is a typical reaction, but very quickly you will relent and play your part earnestly. 
We don't know much about the directors, only that they are clever enough to get us to do something we don't want to do. Why do we play our parts so earnestly? Why don't we go on strike and blow the cover of the truth? One factor is the sincerity in the face of your lover, her life of unexpected reactive emotion, her heartfelt, her heartfelt belief in the chance and spontaneity. Your slave to that gorgeous, to that your slave to that gorgeous earnestness in her eyes, her engagement with the world of possibility. But in truth, there is a deeper reason you play your part so convincingly. If you play your part well, you can more quickly leave this acting job. Those with the best behavior are rewarded with ignorance. They are reincarnated as an uninitiated beneficiary. You could permanently blow the cover, but the directors are confident that you won't. They know you will sink to any depth of infidelity to preserve the lie for your eventual return to it. And that's the end of the story. And I, I, I just want to read that last sentence one more time because that's what is kind of sticking out to me. You could permanently blow the cover but the directors are confident that you won't. They know you will sink to any depth of infidelity to preserve the lie for your eventual return to it. It took me a little bit to, for that message to sink in. And the, the message for me is how much we want to have a life of acting of social standards and we'll do anything we can to get that life back because it feels good it feels happy and that's what we're used to and yeah i know this is getting super abstract and heady but that that story just made me think about how many of us how many of you are just acting throughout life and how many of you are just experiencing life as a beneficiary. And I think you'll know if you're one or the other based on, I don't know, like your relationships with people, how happy you are during the week when you're at work or at home, those kind of things, right? And I think if you recently watched The Westworld or there's this new show, I forgot what channel it's on, um, it's called Devs. Yeah, on, I think it was on FX or something. But it was all about like, what if we all knew what was going to happen in our lives? I think in Westworld, it was like the Rehoboam like machine already knew what how everyone's life was going to play out. And in devs, there was a machine that could basically forecast and predict exactly what was going to happen in your life. Um, do you want to be someone who is ignorant and thinks that everything that's happening to him to yourself is an accident or you are just you already know the story and you're just helping contribute to someone else's eventual story you know at the at the drugstore waiting in line at the grocery store you know that kind of thing and it, it kind of it kind of brings up this whole notion of um what is it like predestination versus term free will versus predestination i don't know i don't know the exact um, 
analogy, but you, I think you kind of get what I'm talking about. So yeah, that 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 story. I don't know why that that especially the last line. It just keeps on sticking out to me as like, like how much we crave that those social patterns that and the stories we tell ourselves about these social patterns that have come out through the years. And this goes back to like the um, Yuval Harari's *Sapiens* and how we want we'll do anything we can to get that that quote unquote lie back about our lives. So that we can again become beneficiaries ourselves, so that we get other actors to play their parts, and we're just you know living along and humming through life, and just thinking that we're a part of some um, some spontane- spontaneous force. Well, that's uh, I know it's kind of a weird thing, weird story to end on, but getting close to the forty-five minute mark, so I'm gonna leave it at that. And uh, thank you for listening, and I'll see you at the next episode. Mm-hmm.